Cheers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark, and this is Storymaker Show. And today on Storymakers, we're going to talk about emotional logic. But first, what are you working on? Well, right now, I am working on like a lot of bits and bobs, I think is really what I'm working on. The main focus for the past bit has been getting the resources for our book and year program wrapped up, squared away. So a lot of thinking about the high-level aspects of writing, uh, but not so much actual writing. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about the bobs? Um, you said the bits were this. Yes. And the bobs are that I've been doing a lot of work at our um, kids' school, getting some of the makerspace up and running. So Very creative. Yes. Well, I, um, so re- our listeners will recall, perhaps, that after I submitted my manuscript and was waiting, I, we decided in a gung-ho moment to each write something new and Just then submit it. Just before our burnout episode. Yeah, yes. right before we crashed and burned. And in the name of, you know, winning, basically, <laughs> I wrote a 100-word essay mm-hmm. for the Tiny Love column and submitted it on the day of our next podcast recording. And... Um, it looks like they're going to publish it on Tuesday, which That's is to awesome. say when this episode hits, it should be, I guess, on In the Times. or yeah, NewYorkTimes.com or I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody said, is it online or in the paper? And I said, I don't know. But it's tiny and it's love. Yes. And it's about you. So you could always say tiny love at NewYorkTimes.com and find it because of the way that yeah, as long as you don't make it look like a email address. Anyway, so that's super fun. That was just really fun to have a you know assistant editor at the New York Times call me up and chat a little bit about our meeting. Our well, it wasn't our meeting. It was our first date. Mm-hmm. Some thirteen years after, after we meeting, met. Yes, yes. <laughs> we don't want to rush into things. No. no. So um, anyway, that was. Like, so encouraging, but not enough so that I've submitted something else, but encouraging nonetheless, yes. um, because now I've got my manuscript back, and I'm just finishing up a few things and sending it off again, so right, so right. it goes. Yay. So the interesting thing about getting it back and having you know, very few notes, really, um, although she did say, I think you can do this in about an hour, and that is not true, but... Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's just that part of diving back in and just being courageous and doing stuff. And the more done it feels, in some ways, the harder it is to go excise something. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing. And I also, I don't have really any much time between now and Monday, but I said I'd send it end of day Monday. Okay. So I can do that all Monday if I have to. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. But you have time today and tomorrow. So. Well, except that I'm teaching. And then, and then we have our date night at four. <laughs> our date late <laughs> Secrets, afternoon. too. Uh, and then I'm leaving for Santa Cruz for a retreat with my friend from college. Woo! Yeah. Which is not a writing retreat. So, I don't know. It may be that I do it on Monday. Okay. Yeah. All right. But I will do some today. Anyway, there we go. Well, I wanted to talk about emotional logic today. And the reason I wanted to talk about emotional logic is because, uh, you know, fires are happening again here in Sonoma County. And, and just uh, let's just say we're recording this right now on October 24th. So, yes, um, this is not 24th. news. Yes. This is just experience. And 
it really reminded me of the fires that happened in 2017. Uh, you find all the stuff kind of coming back up. I was out at my folks' house. I was looking at the ridge, watching the smoke. They have an acronym for that. What? PTSD. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, this reminds me of something terrifying. Well, you know, but we weren't really in that kind of situation before. But you obviously, when you... Well, this is the point of emotional logic, which is that um, as I was sort of looking out over the ridge and watching the smoke sort of rise, um, I thought about the people who in 2017 said, no, I'm not going to evacuate. And we see that in almost every major natural disaster. There's someone who's like, no, I know that this whole town is going to flood, but I'm not leaving my house. I'm not leaving my home. And it's sort of funny because as a person with still somewhat young children, I'm like, I'm out of here. Like, how far can I get? I'm going to put my kids in there and I'm going to put my dog in there. Although, and interestingly, we didn't go and you felt guilty about the idea of leaving yeah. your hometown, actually. Do you remember that part? I don't, actually. <laughs> You're like, I'm out of here. But actually, at the time it was happening, we we didn't leave. We weren't in immediate danger, We were, but we were definitely right. shrouded in smoke, and we definitely had friends who were fleeing and losing everything. And um, you did pack up much more than me. I mean, you were much more efficient about, here's my yearbook and whatever, here's some water, and there, there it is in the car. Mm-hmm. It probably still is in the car. But, um, <laughs> but you also felt it was important to stay. I mean, Mar- I your parents think, yeah. are out of town, so that may make some difference. Yes, but um, but there was, and you know, it was you know a lot of these people. These you know these guys right. going in around wearing cameras and telling people to leave their houses are people you went to high school with, right? And I think the thing that made me think about emotional logic and how this relates to storytelling is that, in some ways, when we would hear these stories, it would be a little bit hard to connect with people choosing to stay. And some of the situations we saw, we saw... Well, there was this footage, right? right? So there there was this thing a year later or something where they showed these people kind of not wanting to leave and then they interviewed them and the people were like, if I had to do over, I would just leave immediately. Right. So when we're writing and our characters are making choices that maybe we ourselves wouldn't make... Or we think we wouldn't make. Or we think we wouldn't make. Or our readers need to understand why they're making a choice that is so vastly different from what would appear to be the simplest, easiest path. It's about understanding that character's emotional logic. Where were they just before? So, you know, we talk a lot about decision, right? And the actions coming out of decisions is, are, are how we understand a character, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Huge. So when that decision doesn't reflect something that looks like common sense, <laughs> it's really important that your reader understand that. What's it, what's it coming from? If it's not coming from common sense, and very few human decisions seem to. Right. But again, like this is the example. Like some of that body cam footage, like fire was around them. Right. And they were still choosing. Well, I think thing. part of it is we have... 
an externalized sense of self, mm. that our stuff is really strongly a part of our sense of who we are mm. and our photographs and our computers and blah, blah, blah. And I think people and our clothes, I mean, I think leaving all that stuff in obvious danger felt probably really psychologically hard like this is my home right so you have a great explanation as you imagine (laughs) a character who makes that choice right but how do we establish that before the character is in the moment of decision making right because it's not really enough to say in the moment of decision making because you know ted was worried about his (laughs) cd collection Because he had not heard of the internet. <laughs> we have to establish that love that uh, for those physical objects, that sense of identification in and the ordinary And that's a particular uh, example. I mean, right? that's one, one, right, one explanation. Right. I mean, but in another is that I think home is safety for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to overcome home is safety. Right, but I don't want to talk about a lot of people. I want to talk about your character because you're assuming a lot if you're saying, uh, you know, we just actually had a conversation this morning about someone before taking a shower and what that phrase meant, right? And we can't assume our readers are going to know what so the, we uh, should mean. we just be clear sure. so the, the line it was a line from my book and it said you know she was a beautiful movie star who came over to his house before he'd taken a shower and made herself at home and in like this millionth draft like right this is the my editor cut um before his shower and i and i didn't want to change that and almost every single thing i was like yes 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 and that one i was like no because there's this intimacy of like somebody maybe just getting out of bed right or like not you know that kind of mm-hmm. that before i'm public moment and you just were like he's stinky yeah like you, you and apparently are- she did not have any sense of <laughs> the so when when she cut it, I thought, well, she she doesn't want me to be that show that intimacy. Like it's like it's sort of a like a you know cut making it more PG or so. I don't know what I thought, but so I kind you of thought there was something that implied a sexual attraction, right? And we don't actually know what your editor thought; they no. just suggested it, right? I thought when you were telling them this story that really, and you even had said it doesn't it imply an intimacy, and I was like, because he smells bad, <laughs> and that was what. It meant to me. And so I. this is what I'm talking about with emotional logic. We can't assume our emotional logic. What if I said our characters or our before he Before he was out of bed or, or before he put his overshirt on or, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you could do something like that because those don't imply that he smells bad. <laughs> right? And that is a form of intimacy, right? You know, she came over before he put his deodorant on. Right? She came over during the worst (laughs) bout of you know, post whatever spicy food that wasn't going down well. It was not the kind of intimacy I'm after in this early courtship moment. That's a different kind of intimacy, and that comes much much later. And comes to look forward weeks. to it. <laughs> two weeks, what? Two weeks into a relationship, which is you know. anyway. <laughs> what? I'm kidding. Uh-huh. Anyway, so I think I just wanted to explore the notion of really taking responsibility for our own assumptions. Mm. 
and making it clear to our readers that even the weirdest behaviors are rooted in something. And it sometimes can be so amazing to find out what somebody was really thinking. Right. When somebody when you're like, why did they do this? This doesn't make any sense. And they're like and then they come out with this piece and it's like nothing you would have. I mean, just real human beings. Right. And it's like about the cat or something. You're just and you're just like, what? Oh, my God. I had no idea. Well, I think that's like one of the reasons people are sort of fascinated with some of these. You know, I remember when Dexter came out and it was a, a program about a guy who was a serial killer. Right. But it was like, he Which, did you ever people? watch it? I never Me did. Because uh, I'm actually really not interested in serial killers um but for the people who were watching it there was access to his humanity in a different way i just want to say i bet you watched the eileen warnos movie monster well there were there was charlie's there was that one and then there was the documentary i've not seen either oh so you really the only thing i've ever watched about eileen warnos was carla's opera Ah. so um We'll, put, we'll try to put that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so no, I'm not really drawn to serial killers, although I <laughs> will say that um, that I know of. Um, I will say that, like, Carla's opera was really looking at these, you know, it was sort of the antithesis of Malcolm Gladwell's outliers. Like, you're, you know... Prostitute serial killer is a product of more than just, you know, a diseased mind. Right. Right. So anyway, lesbian too. Yes. Or queer. Anyway, something. Um, what is Carla's last name? Lucero. Thank you. And we will definitely put that yeah. in the show notes. Shout um, out to Carla. Yeah. It would be so great to have Carla on the show. I know she does the. Well, she does a lot of different stuff. So, anyway, I think that um, it's kind of funny as we talk about and explore this because it goes back. I talk a lot about limiting belief. My my students sometimes don't quite grok what I mean, but ultimately, I think emotional logic has to be rooted in a worldview. And so, I think when we do see these people who are like, "I'm not leaving my home." Uh, they do have a worldview about either possessions. I think a lot of times uh, community, um, history, family, what it means to walk away from, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I was I was thinking about these things myself, walking around my parents' house and watching the smoke over the ridge, which actually kind of dissipated. So I hope I'm going to knock on wood for all of our friends up in Geyserville and Healdsburg. Yeah. Um, what I definitely thought about was like, you know, this house has only been in my family for one generation, right? So 40 years, but one generation. And it still means so much. Yeah. You know, it's where my great uncle died. It's where, you know, so many things that formed me as a person happened. And, um, so it's so again you can look at these actions that your characters are taking and not only are you sort of explaining to your reader how they could take that action but to deepen your reader's understanding of your character's worldview by taking that action if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, what is that commutative? <laughs> commutative property. <Yeah. laughs> now you're back into math. Yes. Um, 
why don't you define limiting belief just so that our listeners can be confused as well? Excellent. <laughs> so I use the idea of limiting belief, which I actually love, just to say, as sort of that worldview that is a concept that limits your character in some way. So if you have, you know, I guess like Scrooge was an example I used um, because that's someone everybody's familiar with. So Ebenezer Scrooge from A Christmas Carol. So you might say, oh, his character flaw is that he's a miser. But for me, the actions he takes are driven by a worldview, a belief about how the world works or about who they are. And so you could easily say, okay, but one level deeper, Ebenezer Scrooge actually believes because of his own life story that nobody will protect him, that everyone is out for themselves. And I actually think it's kind of in the story already. You can see when he goes back and he looks at Christmas's past and the different pieces that he's been really hurt and that there's a specific way in which he's protecting himself. And so it looks like, and it gets lost in these simplified versions of the story, that He's just mean, right? This right. is when we get our very limited, single, uh, you know, two-dimensional characters, right? But a limiting belief allows us to go a little bit more deeply into the driver of these actions. I just have this random thought, which is that sometimes when we're young, we understand the people we're interested in romantically in that kind of deep way that nobody around us does. Like, we're like, no, no, this person is just suffering and hurt and has had this hard mm-hmm. life, and that's why they're this way, and everyone around us is like, but still, yeah. you know, they are flawed and right. maybe not the right choice for you. So it's kind of interesting, the uses of story. Right. What right. we tell ourselves to understand right. people and to be empathetic. But I think it's when you are, my, I'm sorry, my mother is on a trip and she's she call, well, sending answer, me answer. Eight, oh. no, she's sending me <coughs> 8 million texts from Sydney, Sydney Australia. Ooh, hello anyway. to the Bowerses. So what I wanted to say is that the piece about having the dimensionality of your character isn't just about who, you know, how you justify hooking up with someone. <laughs> I wasn't saying that it was limited to that. I was saying it's often used in that setting. But again, it's that... (laughs) Sorry. It's like my dad had this joke about like this woman watching the military parade, you know, and saying, look, my son is the only one marching to the beat. It's just just how we understand people. (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. Um... Back to you. I feel like that's a visual joke. No. Well, he told it orally. Yes. It's just if, if there's only one person marching to a particular beat, chances are they're the ones off the beat. I know. Yeah, but that's sort of... But it's better if you see it. Okay. Well, you can draw a picture. Okay. So we've completely derailed the conversation here, and so... Emotional logic. Oh, I got that. Now I have to... Um, think. Mm-hmm. Thinking's hard. Okay. So, limiting belief. Mm-hmm. And so, Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay, here's what I was going to say. So, every character in your scene also has a limiting belief, and this defines how... What, what are the strategies they engage to go after the things they want, right? So, what Ebenezer wants, in my theoretical context, is to feel safe. 
and poor Abby. Right. But the truth is like now you can find a way to have empathy for truly horrible characters. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're like suddenly like, oh, it's okay. You don't have to date them. You don't. Why are you going back to that? As someone who's like married to you, that's just a weird thing for you to go back to. What I'm trying to get to. Because I learned and grew. So what I'm trying to get to is that you may love your protagonist, right? And so they go through the world and they do these things and whatever. And there may be someone that we're identifying as the antagonist. And they're doing things to impede the path of your character. To avoid being two-dimensional on your quote-unquote bad guys, what are they actually doing? I, um, I saw some film where I ended up actually kind of rooting for the antagonist because... Uh, Oh, you know what? I think it was actually Marvel, right? So Thanos' idea of destroying half the universe in a time and place where there were enough resources for everything, it's a different story than when you're looking at a situation like we sort of have now around like global warming and stuff, right? So you're like, oh, this could be a plan. I don't think it's a plan, but you can see that really what his goal is is not just to be an a-hole. He's trying to bring balance. And you or I might choose to bring balance in a different way because we don't have the stones in the gauntlet, but we also don't believe in destroying half of all life. But his motivation makes him a more interesting character. If he's just interested in destruction, he's really boring. But when he's talking about life, yes, he's messed up and we watch it all the way through. Um, but he's less of a caricature, ironically, in a comic book film. That is that is ironic. So, you know, when you look, even when you look at, um, you know, why is Lear not a character? A caricature? Yeah. Okay. Right? He is a fool. <laughs> he makes mistakes, but he's got a worldview where he's he has certain values. And because he misunderstands his youngest daughter, he loses everything. But it's really the worldview that brings him down. Right? Right. And that miscommunication, kind of that they have, they have different metaphors. Right. Just because she thinks meat loves salt. Well, in those days with no refrigerator. Right. But what I'm saying We're heading is, back there. What I'm saying is it's not just that he misunderstood her. He couldn't... He took offense immediately. Right. 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 He was hurt immediately. Because really, wasn't she his favorite to begin yeah, with? Yeah, probably. And she so... The youngest of three, you know. <laughs> so, so, again, it's looking at that worldview that would cause him to be cut so deeply by words. Right. Right. And then to believe the words of his other daughters. Yeah. Right. He has a very kind of a deep faith in his interpretation of language. Right. Does our Lear. Yes. Yeah. Cool. I, I, I have to say one more thing because now I feel like I've insulted everybody I've ever dated. So I'm just going to say that I'm sure that I was the person with the limiting belief and that you just were lucky that I moved through all that. <laughs> it wasn't them. It was me. 
Okay, so <laughs> nothing awkward there. Well, it's time for steal this. Amateur poets borrow. Professional poets steal. What have you seen this week? Your readings or wanderings that you want to make your own. You want to go first? Well, I think I've been saying the same thing for the past 40 years. Um, I am sort of deeply still listening to Joe Bowler's Limitless Mind, which I think we referenced last time. It's actually a limitless book. It's a limitless book. (laughs) Um, I'm just so thrilled because, you know, she's talking about these things that, you know, are geared towards math a lot, but they're so relevant about the, you know, we live in a world of specialization where everybody's like, you know, you aren't just a writer, you're a writer of X. You're, you know, I mean, it's specialization has really taken over and you can look and see, you know, throughout history that obviously the distribution of knowledge externally has been how we've built our civilization. And yet specialization kind of fossilizes our thinking. And so the idea of flexible thinking and and the way you achieve that is by taking the same problem and approaching it in multiple ways. And I'm just really sort of enjoying thinking about that, not just in the mathematical context, um, but also like in a narrative context. So one of the things she talks about is they have a diamond and so you'll have a problem, a math problem in the middle, and then you'll... The student then identifies four different ways that you could solve that problem. That's so good for for book planning stuff, right? Yes. We always make people do multiple iterations of the different exercises that are exploratory, um, which I want to say, like, this year has finally sunk in. Maybe it's the new videos or the way it's being Mm. presented. And what's so funny is that people then are like, okay, I'm doing doing another one. I'm doing another one. Like, they're just, they do really have this different, non-precious attitude. And and the the more they do that, the more exciting the material seems to be. So um, that's very cool. I love that. I love Love that idea. And I think it's a great way. So I think what we might do is create a, a similar model, but um, bringing together the idea of you have a narrative goal that you need to achieve. What are four different ways that you could do it? And one of them might be the way you always do something, right? Like I create a scene or I have this summary, but one of them might be like, a metaphor. One of them might be, you know, and it doesn't have to be perfect, but even just taking the time to think of how you could solve a particular problem and just start with, it's not, none of these have to be the right answer. What these really have to be are different ways of approaching the same narrative problem. And that's all they have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I just want to say, you know, the right answer you, you, there is no right answer. Right. With maybe with math there is, but with with um, not even with math, but with narrative for sure, mm-hmm. <laughs> there is no right answer. And um, you know that's something that Dorothy Hurst is always saying to me, and I had to say it back to her this week, right? Nice. Because it's so hard to remember that what you're casting around for is something that feels right to you. Exactly. The aha exactly. moment, but it's not. There's no other thing, and so if you're if you're waiting to to find the thing that is that is approved externally by the facts, right. it's not there. Yeah, and so it's just you know you think about. Uh you know, people talk about this at the very high level. So, like, what kind of story does well in a X, you know, media? So, this would be a great poem, or this would be a great film, or this would be great, you know, whatever. This makes a, this seems to fit in this category. Like, what if you took a small project and you said, I'm going to 
look at a you know a category that it would normally seem appropriate for and do something else try to think about the pieces that come from somewhere else um poetry and prose often you have this opportunity to really play with but we never do when we don't often i don't mean we because i'm suddenly like oh i know a lot of people who actually do that in their prose but we don't feel free to try and make those mistakes whatever they are right like what like what kind of mistake? well you know i totally love uh the autobiography of Red, right? Anne Carson. Anne Carson. And I also loved the screenplay for Alien. <laughs> they actually have a lot of formal relationship. Mm. Alien, the action graphs in Alien are so concise and so tight. And, uh, you know, and Anne Carson, I mean, I'm still blown away. I, there are line breaks that... <laughs> You know, I, I can't even remember the words as much as I remember the line break. This, like, sense mm. of falling off a cliff. This sense of, like, these two young people, like, connecting with each other. One's, like, a monster and one's supposed to be, like, this, you know, noble hero. And how is it that they're interacting? Is it the Minotaur? Uh, no. But, um... I think just because you said monster and then red and anyway. Yes. And it's just, you know, red is so, that it's so interesting, like red in the context of the language of the time, right? So she's actually, Ann Carson, you want read that book. But I guess what I'm saying is, is the whole thing about actually being willing to experiment. You don't get cubism if you're not willing to experiment. You don't get uh, Matisse's cutouts if you're not willing to experiment. And, and like Matisse was dealing with the limitations of oh, changing physicality. He didn't have the ability to do the painting work. So he's like, great, I'll just do something amazing like this. Mm-hmm. And I will be in every college student's I'm, dorm That's room. what I'm going to do. I'm just going to start. <laughs> as soon as I get old and shaky, I'm going to start cutting. And I'm sure I'll get Matisse's. collage right (laughs) well that's all very exciting yes um well i am listening to the audiobook of carolina de robertus's cantoras which is her new book Mm. and it's marvelous and she's reading it she's a really good reader and and also getting a good person she's i mean she's brilliant and and but there's i mean there's something wonderful about um of course all the ways she can like trill the you know, the pronunciations are, are pleasurable, as language, you know, often is. Um, and, but, and the story, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm some way in, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just, um, it is such a great evocation of kind of the emotional consequences of, like, meeting somebody who's like you in a world where you're not supposed to exist. And it's really reminding me of kind of this foundation of my politics that comes from having that experience of of not being supposed to exist and being drawn to a group of people who weren't supposed to exist and how that made me understand everything about identity mm-hmm. you know as as sort of fictional and political mm-hmm. right and so and so everything i've been saying here in the suburbs when every every time somebody says oh boys or girls you know is yes. is goes back to <laughs> or no right <laughs> right everything thing goes back to that moment of you know that's a super limited language that you're choosing that is reinforcing something that doesn't work really 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's so it's just really exciting. It's it's it's, it's really the same. Well, you know, it's also like someone calling every form of air particulate fog. <laughs> right? And it's not. Even right. if it's, you know, there's some really different air particulate that you really want to have clarity about. There's a spectrum. Yes. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that's our ideal metaphor, but I'm sure it's an important point. Did you say shirts? I did not. I <laughs> Really? Really? Well, people, from our PTSD to yours, <laughs> go write, write about it, think about it, figure out those characters, watch them, watch them closely. Yeah. Yeah.